to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 24, as we follow along with today's lesson. There was also a strife among them, not only... uh, the questioning of who it was, but the strife among them of which would be accounted the greatest. Now, can you imagine this at this point? What he's talking about is death. Uh, I'm I'm going to be suffering. I'm not going to eat of the bread until I eat it anew in the kingdom or drink of the vine until I drink of it, you know, in the kingdom. And here they are now arguing with each other again, striving with each other as to who was going to be the greatest when his kingdom was set up. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That's a trait of the heathen. The exercising of lordship over people. And he said, they that exercise the authority upon them are called benefactors. (laughs) They're not, but they're called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. That's what the heathen are like. But that shall not be among you. But he that is greatest among you Let him be as a younger person. Now, in that society, the older ones always controlled the situation. The younger were always there as servants. They were in a uh, tutoring kind of a thing, uh, learning how to rule, learning how to govern, serving those who were governing. But Jesus said, let the greatest among you be as one who is younger, who is serving. And he that is chief, as he that does serve. John tells us that at this point, or just before this, Jesus had washed their feet. And he said, do you see what I've done? And they said, yes. He said, you call me master and Lord, and and that's correct, I am. But if I, being your master and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's. He that would be chief, let him be the servant of all. That's the order that Jesus gave for the church. The hierarchy that has been established is so unbiblical. 
the, the setting on pedestals, the building of ivory towers, that attitude that we so often see manifested in the ministry of being a little above and thus to be catered to is so absolutely wrong. Jesus said, you're going to be chief, then be the servant of all. So important in the ministry. Now, they're <laughs> in this dispute as to who would be the greatest. And so Jesus said, ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that you might eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, you're going to have your place. All of you will have your place. When the kingdom is established, you'll be sitting on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the Lord turned to Simon or Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired you that he might have you and that he might sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. As we mentioned this morning, it, to me it's quite interesting the thing that Jesus prayed for Peter. He didn't pray that Peter could escape the sifting of Satan. Satan has desired you. The Greek is, is more literally has asked for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. He wants to put you through the grinder. He wants to pulverize you. But I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. We, if we could have our way, would escape every bit of pain and suffering that comes along. And so often our prayers are for escape. None of us really like to suffer. None of us like going through trials. None of us like the testings because we are all of us so short-sighted. We fail to realize that it is through the testings that we grow. Through the testings, character is built. I think it's rather an unfortunate thing that depth of character hardly ever comes apart from real suffering. That it is through suffering, through pain, that character is developed. And Jesus, knowing that, does not pray that we will be able to escape any pressure, any pain, any suffering. As we read the book of Acts, we become very aware of how much suffering the disciples did experience. Even 
death by martyrdom. And the Lord did not deliver all of them from that. We think that, you know, if I serve the Lord, it ought to be just all rosy and beautiful, no problems, no pressures. But that is not the case. And Jesus didn't pray that Peter would not be sifted. He prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. Not only does God use the sifting process or the trials and the test to develop our character, but also to develop our confidence and faith in God, recognizing and realizing that God is able to help us through any experience that we face. That we might gain as I am going through suffering, I am comforted by God, I'm helped by God, I'm strengthened by God. And thus I learn firsthand of how God can minister to me in suffering. And that then enables me to minister to others who are suffering, who are going through the same things that I went through. Here Peter was going to fail in courage, but not in faith. Courage was one of Peter's strong points. He was a rugged, rough fisherman, ready to do battle with anybody, ready to step out in faith. And that place of his greatest personal strength is the place that Satan did attack him. As Satan usually won't attack your weak place, he'll attack your strong place. Because in your weak places, you know you have to trust the Lord. In your strong places, you're foolish enough to think that you can do it without the Lord's help. And so Satan so often attacks us in our strongest place. And he experienced failure. But it gave him empathy and understanding for those who in their testing failed. He was able then to minister as Paul, who said that the God of all comfort comfort you with the comfort that I received when I was going through my afflictions. And the purpose by which for which God allowed me to go through some of these things is that he might comfort me in order that I might share that comfort with you. And so, Peter, I've been praying for you. Not that Satan would not sift you, but I've been praying that your faith would not fail. When you're converted, strengthen your brothers. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you even unto death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow before you have denied me three times that you ever knew me. Remember, it's evening. This evening, Jesus is going to be arrested and taken to the house of Caiaphas. 
before morning comes, before the daylight comes, when, before the rooster ever crows, Peter will have denied that he knew the Lord three times. The other Gospels tell us that Peter objected. He said, Lord, even if they would kill me, I would not deny you. Confidence in himself. Lord, I'm not a coward. Beware of self-confidence. Paul wrote, where I am weak, or when I am weak, then am I strong, because his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Where I am weak, and when I am weak, and I know it, I'm more prone to rely upon him, and as I rely upon him, then I have his strength that is imparted to me, and I can stand. In those places where I rely upon myself, you at your best day, in your best part of your life, are not a match for Satan. And whenever you think you are, you're doomed to have a disappointing experience of failure. God allows failure. God allowed Peter's failure. God knew it was going to come. Jesus was saying, Peter, you're going to deny me three times that you know me. Before the morning light comes, you're going to fail. Then Jesus said to his disciples, when I sent you out, that is, when he sent the 70 out, uh, he said, I sent you out without a purse. Uh, you didn't take your wallet or scrip or shoes. Did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said unto them, but now, he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. In other words, fellas, tough days are coming. It's not going to be easy. And I say unto you that this that is written must be accomplished in me. What has been written? That he would be numbered with the transgressors in his death. Uh, that he would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The prophecies concerning his death, that which was written must be fulfilled, he said. And they said, Lord, and it's still not under, here, we've got two swords. No, 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 no. Don't, you know, you don't understand. He said, that's enough, you know. And so he came out and went as he was accustomed that is, came out now from the upper room where they had just had the Passover. And they went over to the Mount of Olives, to this place where he spent the evenings with his disciples. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The cup that Jesus is referring to is his death. 
upon the cross. Jesus had just taken the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for the remission of sins. Later on, after this prayer and after the commitment to the will of the Father, when Peter drew the sword and began to try to defend Jesus, he said, put away your sword. The cup that the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? When the mother of James and John came to Jesus and said, Lord, I have a favor to ask you. And he said, what is it? And he said, when you get into the kingdom, I want one of my boys to sit at your right hand and the other boy at the left hand, Lord. And he said, are they able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? They said, oh, yes, Lord, we're able. They probably put their mom up to that thing. They're right there to to say, oh, yeah, we can. He said, well, you indeed will, but to give this place is not mine to give, but the Father's. But the cup was always referring to his death. We are told in the book of Hebrews concerning Jesus that he endured the cross despising the shame for the joy that was set before him, knowing what the cross would accomplish in the salvation of souls. He endured it, though he despised the shame. Now in the garden, when he prays, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Uh, The other gospels say he was praying, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If Man can be saved by some other means. If man can be saved by keeping the law, if man can be saved by being religious, if man can be saved by being good, being moral, if we can save man any other way, let this cup pass from me. The cross of Jesus Christ says one thing loud and clear, and that is there's only one way that a person can be saved or forgiven of their sins, and that's through the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You cannot be saved by good works. You cannot be saved by being religious. You cannot be saved by any set or code of ethics or rules or law. There's only one way by which your sins can be cleansed, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ, faith in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. There appeared unto him an angel from heaven that was strengthening him. And he, being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Uh, he, He started out, the beginning he said that back in uh, verse uh, 40 well actually it was verse 40 yes 
uh, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And now he says, pray lest you enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, behold a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, was coming before them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? How low can you get? What he was doing was bad enough. But the feign love with a kiss. When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? <laughs> shall we draw our swords? Lord, he just said, you know, if you have a, don't have a sword, you know, sell and buy one. Time to fight. And one of them, we know it's Peter from the other Gospels, smote the servant of the high priest. We know his name is Malchus from the other Gospels. And he cut off his right ear. Now, remember, it's dark. So <laughs> Peter starts swinging. Jesus answered and said, that's enough. And he touched his ear and healed him. <laughs> grafted his ear back on. <laughs> you know, you hear of, you know, doctors today doing that. That's nothing new. Jesus did it. <laughs> then Jesus said unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. Here they all are with their swords and their armor and their spears and everything else. He said, when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He is submitting. He's not resisting. Then they took him and led him and brought him unto the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, and were set down together. Peter sat down among them. He tried to just sort of blend in with the crowd. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him. She began to study him and she said, this man was also with him. Here's Peter. Lord, I'm ready to die with you. And he was. I mean, he was the one that started swinging with the sword. I mean, you know, I'll go down swinging. And yet now here's a little maid saying, he's one of them. And he denied saying, woman, I don't know him. One. After a little while, another saw him and said, you are one of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. Two. And about the space of an hour, after another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth this fellow also was with him, he is a Galilean. Peter said, man, I know not what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. What do you think Peter felt at that moment? How do you think the Lord looked? That's the real question. 
Was it a look of absolute disgust and disdain? Sort of, oh, how could you do that? Or was it a look of, I told you so? Or was it a look of, I understand, Peter. I know you love me. And I understand. And I forgive you, Peter. How you think Jesus looks testifies to how well you know Jesus. There are many people who would see in the eyes of Jesus anger, condemnation, but they don't know him well. Others would see sort of a taunting, I told you so, they don't know him well. But those who see infinite love and understanding and compassion and forgiveness, they are the ones who truly know him. Because that's the kind of a Lord he is, and that's the attitude he has towards our weaknesses. The Bible said he knows our frame, he knows we're only dust. That wonderful look of love and the result. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. That sense of failure. Now, the prayer of Jesus was that his faith would not fail. Though his courage failed, his faith did not fail. The prayer of Jesus was answered. It doesn't mean that the prayer wasn't answered because Peter failed. Jesus knew he was going to fail. Jesus told him he was going to fail. He knew that. His prayer wasn't even that he wouldn't fail because he knew he was going to. But his prayer was that his faith wouldn't fail. And his faith did not fail. The repentance. Now, interestingly enough, um, we have here with Peter went out and wept bitterly when he recognized his failure. We have with Judas Iscariot when he saw that Jesus was submitting and not rebelling, not fighting, he went back to the priest with the 30 pieces of silver and he said, take this back. I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, that's your problem now. And so he threw, as the prophet said he would, the money on the temple floor and he went out and hanged himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly. One was a repentance, the other was remorse. There's a lot of times that we have remorse for what we have done, but not repentance. Peter repented, and for Peter there was forgiveness. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and they smote him. And then they blindfolded him. And they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, 
prophesy. Who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. God has marvelously designed our human body, and one of the parts of that design is that automatic kind of uh, fainting when uh, we see an object coming towards us. Uh, As the eye automatically responds in blinking when an object is coming towards the eye, so the body automatically responds when we see an object coming, we sort of pull back and, and thus the blow is cushioned. It's interesting how that a person who steps off of a curb not knowing the curb is there can break their foot very easily because they aren't cushioned. It catches them by surprise. Now, we step off and, and we have no problem because uh, our bodies are so coordinated and designed that we can walk down steps. But if you just six inches without being prepared for it, the jar can break your foot. So when they blindfolded Jesus and then began to hit him, there's no reflex action to cushion the blow. And thus you get the full force, the full blunt of the blow. They began to beat him unmercifully until his face became so marred, so swollen, so disfigured that in looking at him, you would not even recognize that he was a human being. That's according to the prophecy of Isaiah. And when we shall see him, uh, his face, he said, is so marred, he could not be recognized as a human being. This came through the abuse of of blindfolding him and beginning then to hit him and and mocking, say, tell us, prophesy, who who is it that hit you? And as soon as it was day, this abuse went on through the night. The elders of the people and the chief priest and the scribes came together and they led him into their council saying, Are you the Messiah? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you wouldn't believe. And if also I ask you, you will not answer me, nor are you going to let me go. Now, just a couple of days earlier, they had come to him and they said, By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority? And so he said, I'll ask you a question. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. Baptism of John, God or man? They said, well, we can't say if it's God because he'll say, why didn't you believe him? We can't say it's a man because the people believe John was a prophet, they'll stone us. They said, we can't answer. Jesus said, I won't answer. So here he's saying here, here he's saying here, uh, and if I ask you, you'll not answer me nor let me go. But then he said, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they said, are you then the Son of God? And he said unto them, basically, you said it. He affirmed, yes. 
And they said, what need we of any further witness? We have heard it ourselves out of his own mouth. And so that brings us to Jesus before Pilate that we'll get into as we continue our journey through Luke. We ended chapter 22 with Jesus before the religious council. He is being questioned directly by the high priest who asked him, saying, Are you the Messiah? Tell us. And Jesus said, If I did tell you, you wouldn't believe. But hereafter, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God. Then they said, Are you then the Son of God? And Jesus said unto them, You say that I am, or you have said it. That's correct. And then they said, What need we have any further witnesses? For we ourselves have heard him out of his own mouth. So in the morning, the whole multitude of them arose and led Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, and these are the accusations. We found this fellow perverting the nation wrong. It is true that he was correcting the religious abuses that were going on. He had cleansed the temple from its merchandising. He sought to return it to a house of prayer for all people. But he was not subverting the nation. He was setting things right that had been wrong. They accused him of forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. This again is a false accusation. They sought to trap Jesus. We had this a couple of chapters ago. They were looking for cases against him and trying to create a case against him. And in trying to create a case and frame him, they came to him with the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And they figured it was a catch-22. Either way he answered it, he would be wrong. If he said, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews would all hate him and turn against him because they all hated paying taxes to Caesar and felt that it was illegal. If he said, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they could rightfully accuse him of encouraging the people not to pay their taxes. So Jesus, understanding their cleverness, just said, show me a coin. And he said, whose image and superscription do you see on that coin? They said, Caesar's. And he said, all right, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. Let me say that if you are involved in a tax revolt, 
you really don't have scripture to back you. Paul said to render every man his dues. Taxes to whom taxes are due. We don't like that, but we obey that because that's the scripture. And Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God's. So it's a false accusation when they said that he was forbidding the people to pay their taxes to Caesar. The third accusation was that he was saying that he himself was Messiah, a king. Now, this is something that Jesus did assert, that he was the Messiah, that he was a king. And so Pilate then asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, You said it. That's correct. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And they were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people. Now they're making further charges. Charges that Jesus was stirring up the people. That again was a false charge. Jesus wasn't stirring up the people. They said, teaching throughout all Jewry, the beginning from Galilee to this place. He's going around the whole country stirring up the people from Galilee down here. Now, when Pilate heard the word Galilee, he realized that that was out of his jurisdiction. When Herod the Great died, Archelaus, his son, more or less inherited the the rulership. Archelaus was ambitious. The title of king did not just automatically pass unto him. His father was known as King Herod. But the title of king didn't automatically pass unto him. So he went with an entourage to Rome to meet with the Senate because he wanted the title of king to be placed upon him. But when he left for Rome, the Jews, because they really didn't like Archelaus, sent other messengers to the Senate saying, we don't want him to rule over us. And so when he came before the Senate, not only did they not give him the title of king, but they divided the area into three sections called the Tetrarch. And so there were then three men who ruled over the area that was once ruled by Herod the Great. Now, gradually in Jerusalem, that southern area, uh, the, the descendants of Herod uh, did not succeed there, and the Roman made that uh, a part of the Roman government, and they sent governors from Rome to rule over that section, and... Uh, Uh, Pilate was one of these Roman governors who was ruling over this southern section. 
The area around the Galilee was Herod, uh, area of rule. He was a uh, descendant of Herod the Great, and uh, he ruled in the area of Galilee. He is the one who had John the Baptist put to death uh, when John rebuked him for his marriage to Herodias, his brother's sister. She was upset. And uh, when her daughter danced before him and pleased him, and he asked her to make a request, she requested the head of John the Baptist. Remember the story. Jesus never went to Tiberias, though he traveled much around the Galilee region. He always avoided Tiberias. That's where Herod reigned. Jesus had nothing to say to Herod. One time they came to him and they said, don't you know that Herod's going to get you? And he said, you go tell that sly fox that I have things to do today and tomorrow. And, you know, he, he just... Uh, called him a sly fox. He, he had he, really nothing to do because of his putting John the Baptist to death. So when Pilate heard that Jesus had been in Galilee, he asked the question if Jesus were a Galilean. And yes, he was. He was born in the area of the Galilean uh, or he grew up there. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth and spent most of his ministry around the Galilee region. So as soon as he knew he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time because of the feast of the Passover. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad because he was desiring for a long time to meet Jesus. He had heard so many things about the miracles and all that Jesus had done, and he was hoping to be entertained by seeing some miracle. And he questioned Jesus with many questions, but Jesus didn't answer him anything. He wouldn't speak to him. He had nothing to say. When a man has gone so far into sin and in debauchery where the Lord has nothing to say to him, that man's in bad shape. Now, the chief priests and the scribes were there before Herod, and they were all excited and making all of these accusations against Jesus. But Herod with his men, the soldiers, the men of war, set him at naught, and they mocked him, and they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and they sent him again unto Pilate. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. Before this time, there had been some enmity. And so when Pilate had called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people, he said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people. 
And behold, I've examined him before you, and I have found no fault in this man concerning those things whereof you've been accusing him. Nor yet did Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worth worthy of death has been done by him. Therefore I will chastise him and release him. For Luke adds here, it was the custom to release one of the prisoners at the feast of the Passover. So they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas, who for certain sedition in the city and for murder was cast into prison. This is almost unthinkable. Here's a man who was guilty of sedition and in the uprising had committed murder. And the people are asking for his release rather than Jesus. What had Jesus done? Well, the witness concerning Jesus is he went around doing good, healing all manner of illnesses. You know, it's a strange world that we live in. It's interesting to me today how that people seem to be opposed to those that desire to do good. And they seek to ridicule and bring to naught those who are trying to do something beneficial. But how they love to exalt evil. Look how Madonna is being exalted, held up as a model. And yet, when we have purity conferences for the girls, they, they always report it in a very negative kind of a, you know, it's always with a, a negative slant and, and with ridicule and scorn. The world hasn't changed very much. Here they were wanting Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so Pilate, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said unto, the th unto them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I would like to suggest that there's a total breakdown of justice here. When the judge is arguing with the people. Now, can you picture this if in the court there in Los Angeles, the people began to uh, speak up and all, and Judge Ito would start to argue with them? You know what he would do. He'd bring down the gavel and he'd say, order in the court. And he'd have the bailiff issue the people out and cite them all for contempt of court. So uh, the justice has broken down when the judge is arguing with the people over the issues, which really weren't issues. The people were determined to see an innocent man put to death. And there was just enough Roman justice that 
Pilate was recoiling against this. This was going against his conscience. He was convinced of the innocence of Jesus. And yet they were forcing him to do something that was a violation of his own sense of justice and right. Over in Acts chapter 3, as Peter is addressing the multitude on Solomon's porch, who had gathered there as the result of the healing of the lame man, as Peter began to speak to those people concerning the healing of this lame man, in verse 13 he said, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus, who you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. Peter affirms that Pilate was determined to let Jesus go, but they insisted on his death. So Pilate the third time said, What evil has he done? I found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But even the suggestion of chastising was not just. Now, had Jesus been a Roman citizen, they could not have chastised him. You remember when Paul was going through the purification rites in the temple and certain Jews saw him there and they, they began to beat up on him and the Roman soldiers came and rescued him and took him to the Antonio Fortress. And as Paul was up on the porch, he asked the captain of the guard, can I talk to these people? And he said, sure. And so Paul started to talk to them in Hebrew, telling them his testimony of conversion. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the trial of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 22-23 through 23 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Lord, as we 
see you receiving the scorning, the mocking, the shame. We realize, Lord, that it was for our sake that you endured the suffering and the cross. It was for our redemption that you died. It was your love for us that caused you to submit to being nailed on that tree, dying in agony, that you might forgive us our sins. Oh, Lord, what love. How we thank you for it. And we receive and accept that love tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. It was his love for me that nailed him to the tree to die in agony for all my sin. For my own guilt and blame, the great Redeemer came willing to bear the shame of all my sin. Oh, what a Savior is mine. In him, God's mercies combine. His love will never decline. And he loves me. The wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. And may you go in the love of God and in the strength and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the enemy comes to sift you like wheat, Remember, Jesus is praying for you. And if God be for you, who can be against you? Who is he that condemneth it is Christ who has died, yea, rather, is risen again, and is at the right hand of the Father, and he is making intercession for you. He's praying for you, that your faith fail not. Not that you're going to escape from any temptation, not that you won't have to go through suffering or trials, but that you will learn in those the comfort and the help and the strength of the Spirit. And even if you, as Peter, fail, he's not going to cast you out for that failure. He'll use it to help you in ministering to others. When you are converted, strengthen your brothers, Jesus said. When you've gone through it, then use that to minister to your brothers. And so may the Lord be with you and help and strengthen you and keep you in his love always through the power of God's Spirit. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The Word for Today is pleased to present a timely book entitled Philippians, a Bible study for women by Kay Smith, wife of Pastor Chuck. In times of hardship and doubt, are you filled with joy? If this less-than-perfect world has robbed you of joy and filled you instead with fear and worry, you must learn the secrets found in the book of Philippians. Join Kay as she discovers the Apostle Paul's top secrets to a life filled with joy, available to every Christian woman today.
Sometimes in the deepest trials, God will so minister to us, or the Holy Spirit will so minister to us, that even in the deepest trials, we can have joy. And that's what we're trying to impress on the people's heart. We have joy just because we have Jesus. For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-9673. And godliness with contentment is great gain.